Upstream is about how we can save time, money, and even lives by preventing problems before they happen. Just look at vaccines, hand washing, or even my favorite contraceptive, hosting a books podcast. And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and when I had a day job, I once went eight months thinking that I needed to replace the lights in the dashboard of my work truck. And then I solved that problem by accidentally rubbing the dimmer switch with my knee. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. I also use the phrase when I had a day job, but it's in a much sadder context. (laughs) Another uh, review that I like. A good discussion of good books by good dudes with good jokes. Free? Subscribed. I love the question and answer review. (laughs) If you want to be a part of our email list and or want to recommend a book for us to cover, email us at thebookpilepodcast at gmail.com. All right, and without further ado, here are our favorite lessons from Upstream. Number one, solve a problem one time, not many times. So Jeannie Forrest was this associate dean at Yale Law School, And one time she was in the very back row of a meeting and a guy in the front row had a big head and he kept blocking her view of the speaker, which for, okay, first of all, imagine having a head so big, you can be in the front row and you're blocking the back row with your giant head. Anyway, she got frustrated because every time this guy moved his head, she had to move to be able to see the speaker. (laughs) What's that? It's just so funny to me. Did you think that this guy, like, he read this book later, and he he's like, oh, man, I know who that was. <laughs> so it goes back and forth. He moves. She has to move. She's really annoyed. And then finally she thought, oh, just move the chair. So she moved her chair one time, and the problem went away. And years later, anytime she was in one of those scenarios, she would just think, oh, move the chair. I can do something to solve this problem one time rather than have to solve it many times. So do you think that maybe Jack the Ripper was just misguided? (laughs) Tell, Tell me more. He just loved the theater. But he never got there in time to get a good seat. (laughs) And in retrospect, he was like, yeah, I guess I could have just, (laughs) I guess I could have just shown up earlier. (laughs) Instead of murdering prostitutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was always like a big headed one that would sit in front of him. So I'm going (laughs) to tell the uh, literal upstream story. But wait, why don't you uh, go ahead and give us your takeaway? So the takeaway for me is anytime you can solve a problem one time, instead of solving it many times, you know, go for it. So I used to cook on this janky old pan and I would spend forever scraping it off. And so I just bought a new pan. You know what I mean? Dan Heath writes in coffee shops and he was always lugging his computer cord between home and the coffee shop. So he just bought an extra cord for his backpack. I used to have to go into work every day. So I made COVID in a lab. Just like if you solve the problem one time, you save so much time (laughs) downstream. So the book gets its title from this story where once upon a time, there were two guys hiking and they came upon a stream where a baby was floating by. So one of them rescued the baby from the water. A moment later, another baby starts floating by and they rescue that one. And they kept doing that uh, until finally one of the dudes just ran upstream. Uh, And then the baby suddenly stopped coming. And when the guy who ran off returned, the first one asked, hey, where'd you go? And the guy replied, I went upstream and tackled the guy who was throwing babies into the water. <laughs> so that's the idea behind solving upstream problems. It's like the difference between 
deleting that spam email you get every single day from Bed Bath & Beyond, or one day taking the upstream approach of just unsubscribing. Also, the epilogue of that stream story is that those hikers for sure gave that trail a crazy Yelp review. I do have two thoughts about that upstream story. And the first one is that it's like a very powerful metaphor for prevention. And the second thing is that as you run upstream to tackle the guy, then there are like five kids who just get right past you in the river. (laughs) So one time after a show, these two like college freshman age girls came up to me and said, you were really funny. We weren't sure at first with the whole serial killer vibe. (laughs) That is a direct quote. At that point, I'd just been like audio recording myself a lot, um, but I started video recording myself more, and I found that like I do, I, I do sort of naturally have like an angry face. I have really low set eyebrows. This was really the seed that they planted <laughs> that helped me realize that, and it still makes me sad every day. But. If it, um, makes, if it makes you feel any better, I have never thought of you as someone with the follow-through to be a serial killer. <laughs> and so at first I tried, like, maybe I should tell jokes that are, like, that are quicker up front to just win them over. But I found that that wasn't mm-hmm. working either. And ultimately what I needed to do is right when I came out on stage, I needed to be smiling more and to lift my eyebrows up so that that... At the very least, I put off a vibe of someone who has only murdered one person. (laughs) Another upstream problem for me is having carpet, which is sort of going out of style. And I get it that it's not as sanitary as like hardwood floors, but there are only so many times that you can tell a kid like not to run, you know, in the, in the house. And unless you're buying head socks with the treads on the bottom, just having carpet throughout the house. And then when a kid falls, you know, they just hit their head on carpet. And I I hate the argument of like, kids just need to hit their head a couple times. And that's how they learn that they're not supposed to trip and fall on stuff and hit their head. (laughs) Like I feel like that's, I don't want my kid getting dementia when they're 30 because I just wanted them to learn a lesson. Sure. I do love the people who are like, we hit our heads as kids and we were fine with our record high crime and multiple wars. (laughs) I don't think OJ ever hit his head. He turned out all right. (laughs) Another example of solving a problem once is what Sean Acor calls the 20 second rule where you make good habits 20 seconds easier and bad habits 20 seconds harder. So for instance, he says, if you want to learn guitar, but your guitar's in the closet, you put it in a stand by your bed, so practicing it is 20 seconds easier to do. Or if you've been eating too much junk food, you put the junk food on like the top shelf, so it's 20 seconds harder to do. So that makes sense to me now. I should be taking all of my methamphetamines and hiding them up in the cupboards. (laughs) Yeah, you get it. All this to say, there's a lot of value in taking a problem and instead of solving it many times, find a way to solve it one time. All right, lesson two. If you have problem blindness, name the problem. So in 1975, there's this journalist, Lynn Farley, who'd been teaching a college course, and she asked female students about their experiences at work. And every single woman had a story where she'd either been fired or had to quit because she had turned down sexual advances from a boss. And Lynn realized, okay, everyone's experiencing this, No one has named it. So she named it sexual harassment, and all of a sudden women had a way to actually talk about it, and men had a way to say it was being blown out of proportion. So the takeaway (laughs) here is 
Sometimes a problem just feels like the status quo, and so it's kind of invisible to us. But if you can name the problem, now all of a sudden you can see it better. So Nietzsche said, the way people usually are, it takes a name to make something visible for them. So Nietzsche then made his ideas really visible to the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, so he brings up what they call alarm fatigue, which is like, you remember when, when, when car alarms first came out when you were two years old, Dave? Well, when car alarms first came out, uh, it, I remember when they became commonplace, the first couple of years, it was like, it was literally alarming. And then after that, and ever since then, every time an alarm goes off, no one thinks... Well, someone is stealing a vehicle. <laughs> yeah, car alarms literally just signal that someone's car alarm went off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have a house alarm, and it, the alarm fatigue, it's, it's almost like it, it spreads from one type of alarm to the next because it had never gone off. But then after having it for three months, it went off at like six in the morning, and my wife just ran downstairs to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> that like, was like our only reaction was, oh man, like a window swung open and set the alarm off. It was like, <laughs> I, afterwards, I was like, what if there was an intruder? And you're just like, I mean, maybe it would have been great. Like, how confident do you look sprinting down your stairs <laughs> at full speed toward a guy? <laughs> so if any burglars are looking for a house where the alarm is not minded, <laughs> the Erskins live at 384 Williamsburg. <laughs> but I do like uh, one of the quotes from, the, from the, the story you just told about the sexual harassment. Habits normalize, and she solved an issue by problematizing the normal. Hmm. Or what was what had been viewed as normal for the past uh, seven thousand years? She basically said the emperor has no clothes, and he needs to start wearing them, or we have to go to HR. <laughs> <laughs> on the on that subject of naming problems so that they become more visible to you. Since reading this book, I've started doing that in my own life. So, for example, I noticed that whenever I start a new habit, I often like kind of go too big too fast and then I burn out. So, for instance, meditating, I've always wanted to meditate and I've tried so many times, but I would go big at first and then I'd fall off the wagon. I think your problem is that you are meditating on a wagon. <laughs> Sometimes that's just where I feel peaceful. <laughs> and so I just named that phenomenon in my life where I started calling it the tortoise and the hare. And I realized, okay, I'd rather do a little bit of something and actually stick with it than do a lot and burn out. So now since naming it, now I just try to meditate five minutes a day, usually while Kellen is talking. And ever since I've named the problem, it's just like way easier for me to spot that problem when it happens. All this to say, if you don't see the problem, it helps to name it. All right. Lesson three. Preventing a problem is invisible, but more effective. You can quantify how many people you arrest or how many tickets you give out, but you can't see you can't see progress using the other method, using prevention. You can't bring a report or a statistic back to the police clubhouse. That sounds like what they would call it in Canada. <laughs> you can't come back after a day of allegedly, you know, preventing accidents and say, hey, I made X number of people slow down before they got to it so I didn't have to give out tickets. That's what it means when, when he says that preventing a problem is invisible. I think it was Amos Tversky who said, it is easier to improve the world than to prove that you have improved the world. 
And sometimes with these prevention efforts, there seems to be a dichotomy where the path of prevention may make the world better, but it's harder to prove that you made it better. So for instance, the cop parked before the intersection may stop more people from speeding. Whereas the path of reaction, yeah, it didn't, it didn't improve the world by as much, but you can like prove that you did something. Mm. You know what I mean? He brings this up in the end of the book, uh, this great story about Y2K, and that there are actually like millions of dollars set up and a, a whole team set up to to try and solve these problems, uh, to prevent catastrophe from happening. And then, but it's sort of a, almost a lose-lose situation in that if a disaster happened, then you get everyone saying, see, we knew this would happen. No, we didn't do enough. But then what happened is that they actually did prevent a lot of disasters from happening, but because they didn't happen, it becomes this thankless job where the public goes, see, everything's fine. Right. Because if you're the person in the government in charge of Y2K and nothing happens, everyone's like, man, what a useless job. But if everything blows up, then people are like, who was in charge of this? <laughs> Which is kind of what it's like to be a parent. <laughs> exactly. Uh, where were you during Y2K? I was in my grandparents' basement having a New Year's party. <laughs> I really was. Was her basement made of uh, 10 inches of reinforced steel? <laughs> no, but it does have a lot of unfinished concrete. <laughs> a bomb shelter party. Just in case. We're not afraid. But just in case, I'm going to twist this hat shut before we play Monopoly. <laughs> I do remember even as like a little kid just being underwhelmed by Y2K. I just remember being like, oh, I was promised a disaster. <laughs> right. I was at a, a youth dance. <laughs> You're laughing at me being at a dance with other teenagers when you were partying at your grandma's? <laughs> the one thing I remember is that they played 1999 at least seven times during the night. Maybe the DJ was like, this is the last time we'll be able to squeeze these in. The song won't make sense in an hour. So upstream solutions are broader, slower, and hazier, but when they work... They really work. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't that sound like a Puritan man describing his daughter to a potential suitor? <laughs> She's broader, slower, hazier, but when she works, she really <laughs> works. That was a direct quote from the book, so you can associate that misogyny uh, straight with Mr. Heath. <laughs> Number four, beware of unintended consequences. So this is a short one. Nick Bostrom points out that we're lucky that none of our inventions so far have been world-ending. So, for example, he says, when we figured out how to make nukes, imagine if nukes had turned out to be really easy to make. Oh, like, if any gang or terrorist group or Texas had a nuke, the world right now <laughs> might be in tatters. We have a lot of subscribers in Texas. Just want to let them know the joke doesn't apply to any of them. <laughs> So he says, we've been, we've been really lucky so far, but what if we're not always that lucky? Like, what if someday genetic printers are super cheap and anyone can just print smallpox or the Spanish flu? We need to be thinking about what the unintended consequences of our actions or our creations might be. Anyway, have a good Thursday. <laughs> I just want to imagine a world where there's a BuzzFeed article. It's just not a list of like 10 life hacks. <laughs> Number one, hang a tennis ball from your garage so you don't pull too far forward with your car. Number two, 
Is there a country that's bothering you? <laughs> All right, random facts. So there was this program called the Diabetes Prevention Program that drastically reduced chances of people getting diabetes. And Medicare and Medicaid was deciding whether to expand it nationally. And then they realized, oh, whoops, it's not cost effective because if people live longer, we have to keep paying for them. And they almost cut the program for that reason. (laughs) So now I want to make a movie about these actuaries who they work for a pension fund and they mess up their life expectancy calculations. So the company's going to go broke. So they have to go out and kill the people who they predicted were going to die. (laughs) So Iceland had a very successful teen sobriety program. And they found that the problem wasn't just, the problem with just say no was, that was just promoting reaction for when mm. you were tempted with it. But the issue in Iceland is was that drinking just became rite of passage to the point where culturally it was just what you do uh, when you you know, turn nine or whatever it was. Uh, but the country <laughs> found out that they basically they're crunching the numbers and finding like, maybe since our drinking rate has now surpassed Russia, that we should uh, find an upstream solution to this problem. So they made sports widely available in their communities, high quality programs where they would hire professional coaches and make it easily accessible uh, to the youth. So they tried to create an environment where instead Instead of preaching to kids not to drink, they just created an environment where drinking wasn't the only option, Mm. which means that I should never go to Iceland because I'm terrible at sports. And if there are (laughs) only two choices, (laughs) like maybe if my only choices are racquetball or vodka, I'm for sure coming home with an addiction. I love the idea that every nerd in Iceland is just sloshed because they're terrible at sports. (laughs) Okay, to recap, our favorite lessons from Upstream. One, solve a problem one time, not many times. Two, preventing a problem is invisible, but more effective. Three, if you have problem blindness, name the problem. Four, beware of unintended consequences. And five, I mean, if you have like a big Benjamin Franklin head... Just sit in the back. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Book Pile. We put a lot of work into each of these, especially when Dave has adjusted his microphone to sound subtly like a deity. We appreciate your ratings and reviews. We'll see you on Monday. 